Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us back here on Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister and host of the show, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Four-sprung suspension has made a bunch of very impressive upgrade products for a variety of suspension components over the years, and we've been impressed with a bunch of them, including the Seekus and Smash Pot fork upgrades, but they've never had their own standalone fork or shock. That's changing, though, because Forsprung has been working on a coil shock of their own design, and while it's not available to the public just yet, I sat down with their founder and engineer, Steve Matthews, to talk about the design of that upcoming shock, what they hoped to achieve with it, why start in on their own shock project now, and a whole lot more. Steve shares a lot of information about the upcoming shock that hasn't been discussed too widely yet and just has some really good insights into what it takes to design a mountain bike rear shock and what makes for a good one. So I think you're going to learn some stuff here. It's a pretty interesting chat, and Steve is, as always, excellent at explaining this stuff. So it's a good one. But before we get into it, I do want to take a minute to encourage you to check out our upcoming Blister Summit, which is just about a month away this February in our home in Mount Crested Butte, Colorado. And in addition to being just an enormously great time, there is a ton of really good snow sports gear to check out and demo, both skis, boots, snowboards, but also packs, safety gear, all the stuff you need to go have a good time sliding around on snow. And on top of all that, there's just a really good group of people getting together to have a good time, talk about gear, have some great panel sessions to that end, and a whole lot more. So it's a blast. Check it out at the link in the show notes and come join us. And with that, let's get right to my conversation with Steve Matthews of Vorsprung. Well, Steve, great to sit down and chat, and been a while. You had, came on a couple of years ago, but uh, lots going on since, including the main topic of our conversation today, the shock project that you've been pretty openly working on for a bit. So excited to talk about that and get the rundown on what you're working on. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks for uh, having me on. Um, yeah, I've been working on the shock for close to three years now, actually. Um, I guess we develop things fairly slowly there. We don't, you know, obviously have the the resources of much bigger companies, so we've been taking our time trying to get it right. Yeah, certainly those things take some time. And I guess, well, you kind of covered one of the big questions of how long it's been going, but what made you sort of decide that it was time to dive into that project and start trying to make a full shock, which will be the first kind of complete standalone product that you've offered if i've got that right as opposed to kind of upgrade parts for other third-party stuff and so you know it's a big change for Vorsprung. what made you take that leap now basically came about from the tractive tuning program uh where we had you know developed a way to to tune shocks uh that were you know generally very happy with the results of uh generally got very good feedback on and as we tried to expand that to other shocks, we just kept running into uh, we kept running into sort of walls 
where we couldn't get the shark to do what we wanted because of something that you know was designed into the shark and so we would you know come up with a, a tuning system um and then you know over time we basically just consistently find we needed to replace too much of the shock and it you know it stopped being worthwhile then there were shocks that we were trying to tune for um where we weren't really sufficiently convinced in their robustness uh and you know we don't want to we didn't, really didn't want to take people's brand new shocks and uh tune them and essentially void the warranty on them only for them to then have a problem that was you know, a warranty issue, really, um, that we would be on the hook for. And so, you know, there's some <laughs> notable omissions uh, in the shocks that we've tuned for. Um, and that kind of just led us to the point of, you know, such frustration with it that it actually became easier to build a design and build a whole shock than it did to try to retrofit existing shocks to do what we wanted. Um, because the sort of the traditional way to monetize uh, like revalving shocks essentially is that either you do all the work yourself, uh, you know, if you're a service center, for example, and this is this is fairly common in the the motorbike world, uh, that you do all the work yourself, and you don't share your data with anyone else. Uh, that makes it very hard to scale, and you know, have other people installing and doing the tuning for you so then typically what people would do is have their own uh piston kits you know like race tech kind of pioneered this with the with the gold valves um so people would have their own piston kits and you know there's a few companies still doing that in the mountain bike world uh where they'll sell the piston and the valving and the valving only really works with that piston so people can't easily take the valving configurations and then copy that and sort of on sell it as their own thing uh, without paying you for the piston. So interestingly, the shocks that we tractive tune for, we don't replace the main pistons for uh, because like the, the super deluxe, uh, the first generation of the super deluxe and the Monarch plus the piston design was actually from a damping perspective, quite good. Um, some difficulties with knocking with very low, from a damping perspective, the piston design was fine. So we looked at the base valves, which had some um, some restrictions in there in in terms of the way they were designed, not necessarily flow restrictions as such. Um, and we altered those to give a more linear characteristic. But we weren't replacing the main piston. And nor did I want to because it wasn't wasn't really a necessary thing to do to solve any issue except for for knocking with very light valvings. So then that kind of led us to, all right, well, let's see what we get with other shocks. And we tried, you know, we looked at tuning for a dozen, maybe not a dozen, half a dozen other shocks. Uh, wasn't really working the way that we wanted to. We'd find that we need to replace the piston, whatever. Um, but it wasn't because it wasn't scalable across uh, all the different shocks that like we couldn't just do sort of couldn't do the work once and then have it done. Um, we just, yeah, I got really frustrated with that, but because the, the typical um, method has been to have like a main piston 
and sell that with a, a valving kit. That wasn't a route that we wanted to go down, basically, with just um, just having a piston and a, a valving kit for the for the sake of it, because a lot of the time the effect that you can get there can be you know reproduced with just a just a valving kit. But in order to get things to behave exactly the way we wanted, um, you know, most designs had elements in them that needed replacing, and sometimes it ended up being like half the shock needed replacing. Right. Once we got to that point, we're like, this is not really scalable or feasible for us to to continue with and when we don't really feel like we're giving we don't really feel like we're getting a good return on the the time and effort invested so by developing shock there that really let us control all the factors you know do we have enough flow area through the valves do we have enough flow area through the entire shock do we have adjusters that work the way that we want them to work? Do we have the types of characteristics that we want? Do we have the number of adjustments that we want? Do we have a climb mode that's as effective as we want? Um, do we have things like the seals and the wipers that work the way that we want? Um, do we have the internal support that we want so the thing can deal with side loads? Um, and so, you know, looking at looking at the numbers of shock failures that we were seeing across different brands uh, and, you know, not singling anyone out here or any fingers because it's a fair thing to get right. But when we saw um, the degree of shock failures that were occurring across um, certain brands, certain models and certain implementations with the bike, which was actually a much bigger factor than I think most people realize, uh, then we started to think, look, we kind of want to take this on ourselves, do it the way that we feel is doing it properly and do it in a way that where we're not having to redo the work again down the line. You know, when once the work is done, that investment is made, the payoff continues to be there, um, both from the point of view of reliability, the point of view of performance, and the point of view of our knowledge of the system. Yep. That all makes a lot of sense. And I think there's kind of an... Well, an interesting trade-off there where that you touched on a bit, where on one hand, if you're trying to develop you know, the upgrade parts for an existing shock, you are, well, one, obviously you're limited by the architecture of that to a certain extent, and then without having to just replace the whole damn thing, but then you're also just beholden to whatever upgrade cycle or revision cycle that the original shock manufacturer decides to operate under, and when they go and change something, you're starting over again. On the other hand, it's pretty easy to see how there is value in having a product that drops onto an existing model and costs quite a bit less than a full new shock because, I mean, I don't know what the sales numbers are, but I have to imagine that the overwhelming number of mountain bike shocks, even just high-end ones out in the world, are still things that came OE on a bike or a frame rather than having been sold aftermarket. So, um, yeah, the scale of that market is much larger in the sense that if you are tuning shocks, you kind of have access to the entire OEM market. Um, the selling shocks aftermarket, which is what we'll be doing, you know, initially with, uh, our upcoming shock, that is definitely a much smaller market. And you're right about that. Um, as far as whether it's a smaller dollar value, I would say almost certainly it is a larger dollar value. Um, the tuning of the tuning of shocks is not something that a lot of people 
take seriously because they're just they're essentially unaware of what it can do for them you know and that's maybe a failure on our part to to educate people um as to what benefits they can like realistically expect yeah that makes a lot of sense and um definitely kind of have conversations with folks that go along those lines where they're like uh oh you know my bike's not doing x y and z quite the way that i want it to what new what new shock should i put on it and very often it's like well, well slow down you know maybe we can get you where you need to be with just settings changes maybe you need a little bit more need to get it more fundamentally retuned but jumping straight into buying a new shock straight away is not very often the the place to start at least yeah and that's actually that's actually a really important observation is that um the psychology of the the psychology within the mountain bike market is you know i don't like this the way that this is behaving i should replace the whole unit um and because that is the sort of the way that the products are marketed mountain bikes are very modular you can easily buy a new fork or a new shock or a new cranks or wheels or whatever uh and just bolt them on so within the um within for example the motorbike world there's actually not that many people making forks you know it's relatively hard to go and buy a whole fork um compared to what it's like with uh with mountain bikes it's it's expensive it's difficult there's not that many options most people and the 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 oem chassis actually work fairly well so simply tuning those is actually a very good option um with mountain bikes because of the the modularity people see the unit of adjustment as being the fork or the shock, not a specific subcomponent of the fork or the shock, even though that is very often what makes the biggest difference. Yeah, I think that's really well put. And um, just, yeah, food for thought for people to when they're looking at something new. But at any rate, back to the shock that you're working on. Well, you know, based on some photos that you've put up and seen floating around, um, you know, appears to be pretty, you know, it's a bigger coil shock. Um, tell us just a little bit about the high level of the design to, you know, whatever detail you're willing to diverge at this point and what you're working on. Um, it is, <laughs> maybe a better question is, what can you tell about the shock from what you've seen of it? Oh, boy. Okay. Um, well, yeah, so the versions that i've seen that i off the top of my head here um like i said coil pretty normal looking piggyback layout uh appears to have spherical bushing or spherical bearings at the eyelets on the eyeleted versions seen one that had uh both a trunnion and a standard eyelet mount on it which i assume was just straightforward prototyping reasons rather than that being anything that would go forward to production um climb switch um looked like uh well a couple of adjusters on the shock bridge including what i think was probably in a hydraulic bottom out adjuster a little bit lower down um kind of underneath the two main ones um i think those are the main points that i got how'd i do yep uh doing pretty well there so it is a twin tube um shock absorber Adjustable high and low speed compression, rebound, uh, hydraulic bottom out, 
only one rebound adjuster. We've basically found that. Uh, the, the current methods on the market of adjusting high-speed rebound have not done what we would want them to do. Not to say that they are bad or useless or don't work. They haven't worked in precisely the way that I would like them to with the robustness that I would like them to. Um, and to elaborate on that a little bit, I suppose, um, the earlier, like Cane Creek double barrels and the X2s uh, used like a poppet valve. Uh, Fox called it a rod valve. It's the same thing. Um, but basically where the high-speed rebound adjustment was supplying preload to the system. RockShox used a similar thing in the in the Vivids with their uh, the earlier Vivids, not the current Vivid, with their uh, high-speed rebound adjuster. And basically means that the more high-speed rebound damping you request or demand of the shock, the more digressive the curve necessarily becomes. Uh, I'm not a massive fan of that type of rebound curve, so that kind of layout for the rebound adjustment was that was out. Fox have with the VVC a system that uh, effectively adds a leaf spring in series with the uh, with the shim stack, and then you adjust the stiffness of the the leaf spring with the VVC adjuster. So that is actually in principle a pretty good mechanism of adjustment. Um, it has some difficulties with assembly due to the ne like necessity of having very very low or zero clearance without preload on the rebound stack um, and doing that assembling that consistently time after time and you can see this in the, the service process that's published online uh, you know they have a process that is reasonably consistent but it's not as consistent as simply clamping a shim stack together with a bolt um, in my opinion at least and <laughs> So that, the fact that they have a patent on that system as they should, it's, you know, it's a, in principle, a, a good system. Um, that kind of system was out. The single biggest one, though, is that, you know, we could find ways to make adjustments that work whichever way we want. But the biggest one is that having two rebound adjusters in particular confuses people. Like, I'm really yet to meet any sort of consumer mountain biker who really understands what the adjusters do thoroughly uh, when it comes to having two rebound adjusters. And when we've done setup and tuning clinics in the past, uh, the questions that we've got about adjusters, anyone that had those adjusters would ask, what's the high speed for? What's the low speed for? How do I tell the difference? And the truth is there's a massive overlap. So one does affect the other. And because of that, we were just like, okay, this is uh, this is not really going to work the way that we would want it to work. So that led us to just having one rebound adjuster. Um, the compression adjusters we've got high and low speed. That's uh, I'm not going to say relatively conventional because it's it's not quite. Uh, but the high and the low speed compression adjusters behave in more like the way that people would expect them to and are accustomed to. Um, you are right, the shock has spherical bearings in the eyelet mount versions. Um, we are still investigating some some things with those. Uh, but I think, from what I can tell so far, 
uh, solved a lot of the, the difficulties that spherical bearings have typically had in the past, such as like the large diameter of them, uh, clearance issues around the eyelets. Um, you know, some of the some steel bearings don't hold up super well to uh, ingress of water unless they're well sealed. Uh, so we've kind of found a few found a few ways to improve that um, and try and keep the, the side loading out of the shock where possible. Uh, you are correct as well. Hydraulic bottom out adjuster. Uh, that one is fairly straightforward. Uh, we use a similar thing in the Smashpot, so that's uh, that really lets you just dial in as much or as little um, as much or as little bottoming resistance as you need, so you can get the rest of the stroke feeling the way that you want it, and then make sure that you've got the bottom out protection that you need, and not more than you need. Right on. Well, that's a pretty good rundown. And when you were talking about the challenges in assembling the VVC rebound stack in the box shocks before you're kind of talking about just getting sort of consistent clearances so that you're producing similar damping from shock to shock and therefore getting the actual result you want in any given one is that broadly speaking right yes so the amount that shims actually open off a piston is really tiny it's way lower than i think most people realize like it, you know people might think that that means one millimeter but it's more like you know, 0.05 to 0.1 millimeters is a typ typical amount that will open. So if you consider, you know, even a fine pitch thread where you have 0.5 millimeter pitch, uh, that means that for one turn of that thread, um, you're moving somewhere between five and 10 times the typical opening distance of that shim stack. And the rebound shim stacks typically open less than the compression ones as well because uh, you're trying to generate more force um, and typically with less oil flow. So that means that you have these very, very small um, opening distances. And you need to get the, the float, if there is to be any, between the, um, the VVC assembly and the shim stack to be a very small and controlled amount if it's going to be consistent between shocks. So doing that is a challenge in itself. Um, you know, and Fox have some very uh, intricate tools to do that. And the tools are the tools are quite expensive, um, and it's it's easy to mess the process up. So it, that's not to say it's impossible to get it right either. But we looked at that and thought, yeah, I think we can we can do that a bit better. So we have uh, we have a means of tuning the shock in both compression and rebound uh, that does not have the same difficulties there um, as either using a, a system like VVC or as a conventional revalving system where you have to pull the whole shock apart, uh, change the shims out, re-bleed it, so on and so forth. So we have uh, a system uh which i can't really talk much more about uh, because it is still going through the ip protection process at the moment uh, but we have a system in there that allows us to offer a very wide range of compression and rebound valvings very easily and very robustly in a way that is completely unlike what anyone else are doing uh, and that will allow the shock to be custom tuned very rapidly um, and very robustly 
So that's that will be one of the big, um, one of the main selling points of the shock because the shock itself is only as good as the the tune is suited to the rider and the bike. And you know our experience with the tractive program shows that that varies quite a bit. So you know you can tune, uh, you can offer a, a shock like a generic shock in a, a baseline tune that can be quite good and it'll work really well for some people on some bikes. Um, but consideration of the the frame itself and the rider and the rider's individual needs um, is pretty key, and that's that's something that there is a huge focus on behind the scenes that you know there has been nothing in social media about but um <laughs> a lot of time and effort put into development of the the tuning process though so yeah well that's a pretty interesting teaser and looking forward to learning more about what you're cooking up there when the time comes i guess um and not to go too far off into the weeds here but since you sort of teed it up a little while back here what would be your short version of how to think about tuning high and low speed rebound if people are hurt you talking about uh, that being a challenge and wondering what you would sort of say, at least in broad strokes, for how to go about it. Yeah, right. So this is a question. Uh, we, we did a YouTube video on this uh, a good while ago about the X2, the first generation X2 that had the poppet valves. And so if anyone has seen that, um, that video is now very much out of date uh, due to the VVC system. So the VVC system, um, when everything is working the way that it should, I think the easiest way is to put your low speed rebound basically squarely into the middle of the range and then adjust the high speed rebound to be where you want it and then go back and adjust the, uh, the low speed a little further if you need to. If you try to do it in more steps than that or less steps than that, it doesn't really work. Um, the reason being that you can very easily just end up chasing your tail. So, you know, say you set the rebound to some arbitrary setting and then the high speed to some arbitrary setting and now the low speed feels too fast and so forth. Um, the reality is those two are having such immense crossover effect on each other that each time you adjust one, it will adjust the other. And unless you end up, for example, with the low speed midway through its range, and the, the high speed having to be set fully open or fully closed, um, you will probably, using that method, you will probably end up in a pretty good place where you don't need to touch the high speed any further. Uh, and you can simply adjust the low speed a couple of clicks in either direction, get what you want. Um, that applies to the VVC forks as well. It's sort of more useful to look at the... Um, the VVC high-speed rebound adjusters as being like a revalving system than it is an adjuster. So you set it once, you know, you try to get it into the right position once, and then after that, don't mess with it too much. That's not to say you can't go back and adjust it later on, obviously, but um, I think getting that right so that you've got a usable range of adjustment from the, the low-speed adjuster by putting that in the middle of the range um, and, you know, the middle of the, the usable adjustment range isn't necessarily the middle of the clicks. So that might be, you know, say eight clicks from fully closed. Um, but the number of clicks that you have of the low speed adjustable will vary from shock to shock and fork to fork. But yeah, I think 
trying to trying to go any further on that and get you know too deep into the weeds is sort of a mistake in itself. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's beneficial to simply have something that is custom tuned to you uh, from the get go, where you know the rebound valving is appropriate. And you've only got one adjuster to work with. And I will say, like, full credit to Olin's for nailing that with the TTX 22s. Um, if the rebound valving in those is appropriate for you, they've got six clicks of adjustment. Some people will say, you know, oh, I wish I was between four and five clicks or whatever. But all six clicks are typically usable. Um, and you've only got, like, six options. You know, it's not that many to test. So that, that mantra, I think, uh, and that methodology is very very good um it makes it easy to get the adjustment right because it stops you from overthinking it yeah i've found similar just had a really easy time getting those set up provided a decent baseline to inform and mm -hmm. yep they work well yeah, who would have thought yeah, Owens now would think or two about those. suspension <laughs> yeah well yeah good notes there to bring it back around to your shock project i guess why start with a coil you've obviously got a good bit of experience working with both and doing doing both air and coil stuff so what's the thinking there yeah there's a few there's a few reasons there uh one is that for whatever reason um the propensity of people in the aftermarket to buy uh shocks t tends to be that they buy coil shocks um the people I think there's a lot less air shocks sold in the aftermarket from what I've seen, you know, and it might be, there might be some bias uh, from us based on, you know, the terrain and where we're located. But from speaking to our uh, dealers around the world, it seems that most of them would agree on that. The second part is uh, simplicity, right? So with a coil shock, we have fewer parts to make and a coil spring is to a large degree, a coil spring. Uh, we don't need to overthink the, the spring rate curve. We don't need to worry about uh, things like, you know, air ingestion from the air spring into the damper. We can get we can worry about getting the damper right, trying to make that as robust as possible. Uh, and then, you know, the spring is taken care of uh, with something that we know works. We know works well, you know, it works so well <laughs> that it's also the benchmark for air springs. So, um, you know, there's not, not too many people trying to... Uh, claim that the you know the coil spring feels like an air spring but um there's plenty of the reverse so by you know taking that factor out of the equation and you know we have relatively limited resources again we don't have um the capacity in house at this point in time to be making all of those things at once you know like air springs um and the dampers and whatnot because it ends up it actually ends up being quite a lot of parts you know and it's over spread over f relatively few machines uh that means you know, a lot of parts per machine to be made. So that's the main reason. Uh, we will make an air version. We're certainly not opposed to that. Like I'm not, I don't believe in the sort of air or coil purist thing. I think they both have their merits in their place. And um, to a large degree, they are trying to converge upon the same generally accepted as beneficial characteristics, right? Like certain degree of bottom out protection with a coil, um, a certain degree of, you know, ideally adjustability um, with a coil, which is where the Sprindex coils are actually very good. Um, and linearity and predictability um, and control through the, the first two thirds of the stroke, you know, that's where air springs are typically chasing coils. So 
there's uh I think the characteristics that people want actually do converge pretty well, but neither air nor coil hit them so exactly that uh, there's there's no question that you'd want anything else, you know? Yep. I think that's well put. And, well, at, you know, as for that future air version, how different do you sort of imagine the architecture and design of the shock needing to be for the air and coil versions, obviously you got some packaging things to change to build an air spring around it. Mm-hmm. But as far as the damper design itself goes, uh, they'll be tuned differently, I'm sure, but broadly kind of the same design to get there. Yeah. So the damper, the damper layout and parts, uh, with the ex- the exception of you know potentially two or three pieces, uh, will actually be the same. So the coil shock was designed uh, in parallel with um air shock design so it's certainly kind of accounted for that happening down the line um and that is you know that's again something that we wanted to keep our options open with um because in order to do that we don't need to change that many parts uh as it currently stands i think we need to change the outer tube um the bumper plate would become an air seal head uh and that's yeah that's pretty much it the rest of the the shock could stay the same uh, i suppose there are other parts you know the the eyelet at the shaft end needs to mate with a, um, a sealing component and so forth but yeah basically it was built sort of from the ground up to be an architecture that was usable with uh, both air and coil yeah makes good sense and how limiting have you found the packaging constraints on kind of, well, I guess one current metric sizing of shocks to be in going down this. And then also in terms of packaging everything so that it fits on as wide a variety of bikes as possible. Um, both of those have been very challenging, honestly, the, uh, metric sizing is a lot better than it, you know, it previously was right. So we've got more space inside the shock now, uh, than we did with sort of legacy imperial sizes. Uh, and that's, I think that's part of the reason that things like hydraulic bottom out exist now. If you go back and look at, uh, like a 200 by 57 Fox shock, uh, from, or Fox or rock shocks, you know, not, not singling Fox out here. Um, but from, you know, 2015, say there's so little space in there. Um, everything is really crammed into the tightest possible space. Whereas now for a 57, or let's say a 55 um, mil stroke, you've got a 210 by 55. You know, you've got at least 10 millimeters more uh, to fit everything in. So it does actually, the metric sizing has definitely helped. Uh, Would we like more space? Yeah, always. But, you know, that's that's what you've got and that's... uh, that's what you have to work with. And in some ways, you know, having the constraints, it just is what it is. It's not, it's not a terrible thing. Um, because, you know, it'd be very easy to let things blow out and become, um, you know, 300 millimeters long. and be like, yeah, okay, we've got all this immense amount of overlap and huge flow areas and everything. And they're not necessarily strictly necessary. Um, and I, I will say like credit to Fox and rock shocks in particular for, determining the minimum amount of space that is actually necessary to get those those jobs done. It's not easy to get it done in those 
spaces, but they've actually done a very good job of optimizing the size of the shocks to minimize weight and bulk um, and probably cost to some degree while giving you just enough space to sort of fit all the stuff in there that needs to be there. So, you know, the optimization that those two companies in particular have done in that realm is, um, I would say, exceedingly good. On the frames note, that one's a bit harder. Um, there are simply certain frames that have certain mounts, and, you know, we're going through this right now, uh, where there's just not that much space for the the reservoir bridge in some configuration or another. And, you know, ultimately that will mean that there's a few frames that the shock doesn't fit or that we have to have some alternative mounting method to make it fit. Um, and, you know, that's unfortunately, I think the way it's got to be, like not not every shock fits every frame. Um, and especially not every, what I would consider full-featured shock. So if you're going to have something that has all the bells and whistles, has all the adjustments that you want, has the you know hydraulic bottom-out control, uh, especially if that's adjustable, all that stuff takes up space. Um, and if those adjusters are going to work properly, they need a certain amount of space. You know, you can you can put in sort of placebo dials anywhere if you want, um, and there are, there are a good few of them within the industry. But um, in order for them to be effective, they need a certain amount of space to work properly. So, yeah, there's always going to be some trade-offs there. Um, you know, we're working with a number of frame manufacturers to, uh, especially, you know, ones with frames that are both reasonably popular and have some significant constraints around mounting and space um, to try to make sure that, you know, what we're doing will, will fit as much as possible. It's also quite likely that we might end up having to have multiple iterations of our reservoir heads, for example, um, you know, have like a low mount, high mount, something like that. Um, but yeah, we'll cross that bridge. Yeah. I mean, all makes pretty good sense. You're never going to make something that just fits everything out there perfectly, given how many different configurations of bikes there are and knob orientations to give easy access and so on and so forth. It gets very complicated very quickly. Uh, and I guess sort of along the mounting interface note, you posted something on social media the other day about working on trying to develop some testing standards for trunnion mounts and shock yokes to determine kind of loading parameters for those. Tell us more about that. What are you working on there? So to give a bit of context to it, um, my background before the bike industry was working in the automotive industry um, in different test labs, um, structural test labs and performance-based test labs. Um, the What we really saw in the automotive industry are very well-established standards to ensure that, for example, um, towing hitches, which is one thing I was working on, uh, both the towing hitch on the vehicle side and the interface on the, the trailer side are both adequately uh, strong. So you've got you know everything from the, the actual uh, ball hitch and ball receiver, um, like the tongue, the hitch, the mounts to the vehicle, uh, everything on the trailer end of that, that all has to be tested to the same standards on both sides. So you can't, you can't say, okay, we've tested that the, say the tow ball is strong enough, 
but we haven't tested the tongue. We haven't tested the vehicle mount. So we haven't tested the, that the trailer itself can withstand the, the loads that it's rated for. You know, all of that has to be done such that one thing complements the other. Um, there's test protocols for that um, in all, you know, developed countries around the world. So by testing that thoroughly on both sides of the interface, you can be sure that, you know, the, the towing hitch itself is strong enough. You can be sure that the vehicle is strong enough. You can be sure that the trailer is strong enough. Um, and if all those parts can deal with all the, basically all the bullshit that's put forth by the other components, as well as the loads that go through them, um, then you can be confident that you have a really robust system. One of the difficulties that we see with, um, with mountain bike shock mounting, most frame testing, frame like fatigue testing and static strength testing is done without the shock in place. They put a dummy rod in to the frame, they test it, and, and there's a reason for that. It's much faster um, and you don't have to worry about the shock blowing up, but the shock is a functional part of the system. But if you're just trying to test the frame structure for strength, then replacing that makes some sense because you can load it and unload it much more quickly than you could if the shock is in place. Um, and you know, generate a lot less heat and stuff in the in the process. So you know, all your actuators can be smaller, cheaper, lighter, um, and more durable as a result. But the disadvantage of that is that we're not really testing the system as it's meant to be tested. Um, and when we have things like trunnion mounts, um, you know, we made a, a YouTube video about this uh, a year or two ago about the the stiffness of the trunnion mount interface with the shock. Any displacement of that, any misalignment of that, um, while it is in motion, is very hard for the the shock to deal with because the the interface, the the, the sorry, the the shock can't really deflect where it would normally deflect at the eyelet because the trunnion mount itself is, you know, essentially holding it so well. Um, it's so rigid, such a it, it can transfer the load through there so effectively without really allowing the thing to just flex a bit at the eyelet. Um, if you're a shock manufacturer, you need to know how far that deflection is actually going to be in order to be able to test your shock and say, all right, well, you know, with say two millimeters of misalignment at the far end, um, this shock should last at full load two million cycles or whatever it may be. Conversely, if you're a frame manufacturer, uh, if you don't know what the shocks can tolerate, how are you going to know what you have to test your frame to? So what we are trying to put together at the moment here, and we've been talking to EFBE in Germany about this as well, what we're trying to put forward is, um, for example, in the, in the case of trunnion mount, a system or a standard, a test standard that says, okay, if we can test the shock with up to X amount of misalignment, uh, and determine that it's robust with that degree of misalignment, then we can say, okay, as long as the frame can stay within these constraints, then the shock will be robust. That needs to be realistic for the shock and needs to be realistic for the frame. Um, and then, you know, there needs to be the same testing done to say, okay, is the frame stiff enough? Is the frame well and well aligned enough to maintain the alignment, um, you know, both statically, like when you first assemble it, and under say heavy cornering loads or heavy side landings. So can you be sure that if you've tested the shock to have 
two millimeters of misalignment at the at the far end, at the you know the eyelet end, I guess not the trunnion end. Um, is the frame going to stay within that when you're actually writing? And so testing both of those things is going to require that the frame be tested for that kind of degree of stiffness and that the, the shock be tested at that worst case scenario, or even maybe with some overlap, you know, that the frame has to have less than that and the shock is tested in a worst case and so on. And that way, everything is being covered. You know, the, the shock side of the equation is being covered, the frame side is being covered. Because, you know, as a operating as a service center for 10 years, we saw a lot of failures, uh, like a disproportionate number of trunnion shock failures uh, and yoke, yoke mounts as well. And it's easy to just say, okay, based on my anecdotes, keeping in mind that we only see, well, not only, but we see uh, a disproportionate number of failed shocks, right? Because like every shock that fails needs to be repaired or replaced. Uh, and a lot of people will ride a perfectly functioning shock long past the service intervals, you know, three years, and then they'll sell the bike and be like, oh, yeah, it's still good as new. So, you know, the, the data we have is certainly skewed, certainly skewed. Um, and I think the big manufacturers will have better data than us on it. But from what we saw, um, a disproportionate number of shock failures came from trunnion mount and yoke mount frames. And it's easy to simply point the finger and be like, oh, it's the frame's fault. But then the frame manufacturers go, well, no, like this other shock doesn't have the problem. It's the shock's fault. And the reality is that, you know, the frame and shock combination is not suitable. It's the combination that's the problem. And it's the combination that needs to be tested and rated. And that isn't because the shock necessarily is faulty. It isn't necessarily because the shock is poorly designed. And it isn't necessarily because the frame is poorly designed either. So what it really means is that developing that combination test standard um, is, in my eyes, the only way to actually move forward with any confidence that the products that we're developing are sufficiently robust as a complete package. You know, if we're going to say that, yes, this shock will work on this bike and we can say you have a warranty for X period of time, we can guarantee that it will work for that period of time, it actually needs to be tested, you know, on with all those elements incorporated. Um, and that's really what we're trying to do there. So the trunnion, the trunnion mount one is uh, more straightforward than the, the yoke mount because the, you know, the cause of the misalignment is more obvious. Uh, the yoke mount one, the, the buckling propensity for yoke mount shocks is pretty difficult to exactly replicate in a lab. Um, but, you know, just from being able to see where the, where the failure modes are when people break shocks on yoke bikes, it's typically, you know, the shaft will snap on a coil shock, uh, near the eyelet from seeing this, all right, well, where in the travel is the bike when this is happening? Uh, what is the failure mode? And it's, you know, essentially bending, which is something that shouldn't really be happening to a, to a shock. It should be a what they call a two-force member, where you only have sort of axial forces acting directly along the axis of the, the shock. Um, so that, because that means a failure is a little more complex, that's going to take a little more time to fully unravel and develop a good test protocol for. But um, I, I have a lot of confidence that, you know, that can be done. And that's something that we are discussing with frame manufacturers at the moment. Um, and trying to develop a mutual test standard that can be published that everyone in the industry can utilize 
say, okay, well, yeah, my frame meets these characteristics. My shock meets these characteristics. We're certain, you know, that barring any actual manufacturing defects, that this will work. Like, there isn't a design level problem here. So, yeah, that's the uh, long and rambly version of what we're trying to achieve there. No, I think that's a good little peek behind the curtain on that project. And I think a good thing to be figuring out because, as you said, sort of been the state of affairs where we have these mounts that are potentially harder on shocks and not getting agreement between everybody on what is good enough is uh, an, an impediment there. Yeah, and there's definitely market forces at play from the point of view that, you know, if you're a frame manufacturer um, and you see a, a standard that the shock should bolt into, you know, it's 54 millimeter trying to up top and 30 millimeter, whatever down the bottom. Um, and you're like, okay, sweet. I can just buy a shock that slots into that. And I just designed the frame to mate with that. All right, great. Then the shock fails. And you're like, oh, must be a problem with the shock. So yeah, it could be, it could be a problem with the shock. It could be a problem with the frame. It could be a problem with the combination or it could be a problem, uh, a problem with both of them. But, one of the, the biggest difficulties and confounding factors that we've seen is that the frame manufacturers buy from the shock manufacturers and not the other way around. And so, the you know, the idea that the customer is always right is obviously like not actually strictly correct, but in an economic sense, it sort of is. Like if they're your customers and they're like, hey, we have this problem with your shock, then you're like, okay, well, I guess I have to fix it. And it's not actually the fact that it's your frame that is out of alignment or you know, it just flexes so massively under cornering loads that the shock is not operating anywhere near where it should be. Um, and so we want to we want to clarify that and just eliminate that source of disagreement because, you know, finger pointing doesn't actually fix any problems. All it does is kind of create bad blood between frame manufacturers and uh, suspension manufacturers and customers. And you know, there's there's a lot of uh, how would I say, a lot of product reputations within the bike industry uh, that have been marred by things like this. Has there been anything that has sort of stood out as having been a particular challenge, either surprising or unsurprising one, as you've gone through the design and testing process that you've undertaken thus far with the shock design project, kind of anything that's or anything conversely that has actually ended up being more straightforward than you thought it might be? Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, getting um controlling top out was actually both much more difficult and much simpler than uh we originally anticipated. Um originally we had built in a uh hydraulic top out mechanism. Um because you know, one of the things that we've seen with uh, the twin tube shocks across the years, um, Olin's, uh, yeah, I guess all twin tube shocks, um, is a bit of a propensity to top out if the rebound is run fast and/or the preload is run fairly high. So we looked at that and we're like, okay, well, with single tube shocks, it's typically easier uh, because you can run a hydraulic top out circuit uh, just by obscuring the um, the rebound sort of inlet port on the side of the shaft uh, with the bushing. And so that's typically been how the um, hydraulic top out has worked. So we looked at implementing something within the confines of twin tube shock uh, and 
we spent a lot of time testing it and trying to get it like exactly right. And it just never really worked. Um, because, <coughs> excuse me, because with um, hydraulic sort of bump stops, you know, like bottom out or top out, you have a certain degree of distance that's required for engagement. Uh, you need to disengage smoothly. And, you know, in the case of a top out one, it's one thing for a bottom out, uh, hydraulic bottom out system to disengage a bit uh, roughly because you're in a very high force part of the stroke. Like you've got maybe 1,500 pounds of force from the spring. If that suddenly jumps or drops by two pounds from the, um, the HBO disengaging, you're probably not really going to notice. Um, you know, if you're fully bottomed the bike out, everything's clanging around, there's more going on to distract you from that amount of noise or anything like that. The same definitely is not true at the start of the stroke. So if you've got something that disengages and makes like noise, you know, popping or knocking or um, sudden changes in force, then that is really noticeable to the rider and very annoying. And likewise, if the thing tops out all the time every time the wheel leaves the ground, um, then that's that's not good either. And so after maybe eight weeks of messing around trying to get that hydraulic top out exactly how we wanted it and going through so many different iterations of it, we decided to try a fairly thick rubber bumper and it was perfect. We were just like, fuck. <laughs> Should have been the first port of call. So uh, that was one of those examples of, you know, we were just overcomplicating the, we were overcomplicating the the issue, and you know the simpler, cheaper, lighter, more robust solution ended up being the right one. So that was uh, that was very enlightening and frustrating, but you know that's uh, that kind of thing definitely happens fairly frequently because I uh, I do sometimes let us get a bit carried away with uh, trying to make everything too perfect rather than making it good enough and, you know, leaving it at that. Um, and, you know, it, I think for most people it wouldn't take three years to develop a shock. That, you know, probably says a lot about the number of ideas that we've tried that have proven to be poor for whatever reason or proven to need adjusting for whatever reason. Um because we have gone through, we must be close to a hundred iterations of that shock right now. In terms of actually physically built things that you've tried out, uh, yeah, like each each version of hardware changes. Um, yeah. You know, and sometimes those are relatively minor, but sometimes they're pretty major. Sometimes it's like full, been a full redesign of you know, inner tube, seal head, pistons, damping circuits, reservoir bridge. You know. When you go through a design revision that large, uh, that's, you know, I'm not going to say starting from scratch, but it's definitely a big step back. Sure. And as you've been going through this whole process and building and testing prototypes, when, how do you kind of think about what bikes you want to test those on and what do you look for in a bike as a suitable platform to be working on the development with i think the the right answer is you want something that is not a high pivot um because if you test a shock on a high pivot bike the shaft speeds are much lower um over square edge stuff in particular so it's if you were to 
test just on those, it, you get so little harshness from the frame that the the shock tune could be quite poor and still um, you may not know about it. Or not necessarily a poor tune, but it may be that it would be totally unsuitable on a low pivot bike. So high pivots um, were kind of out for testing. And, and that's no slight against high pivots whatsoever. Like I, I have a common style uh, downhill bike and I love it. But um, there's that having a reasonably representative level of progression or ideally a little bit too little progression um, has been, you know, something that we've also looked for having something that has representative uh, mounts. So having to deal with things like um, high eyelet rotation for, um, you know, checking the wear rates on uh, the sphericals, having trunnion mounts, having yoke mounts, um, those sort of things are all pretty critical. Um, on one hand, it's sort of somewhat desirable to test things on frames uh, that are, I don't know, the worst case scenario is kind of the, the right way to look at it. But, you know, certainly from durability, you want to test on the worst ones. But um, for performance, very low pivots uh, can make the, very low pivots and sort of forward axle paths mean that you get very high compression velocities um, and you need to get very well balanced spring and damping rates in order for it to perform well and not be harsh and you know give you grip and support and whatever without uh, without just hurting. Um, but if you go too far with that, obviously you end up with something that's not representative and you end up having to run such low rates of high-speed compression damping in particular um, and low-speed compression damping actually, but you need to have such low rates of compression damping in particular that it stops being representative of what would work well in other frames. And that's, you know, something that we've, uh, we've noted and, you know, tried to codify in our, um, our tuning methodology. As far as selecting frames to test on, that's kind of the, the main criteria. I think there's, there are, there are things that we will come across that we haven't come across yet that, you know, will trip us up. I'm sure. Um, the kind of always is, but testing between the extremes um, and with frames that are reasonably representative or, you know, in some way a little bit less than ideal, at least in one characteristic, you know, they may compromise one characteristic. And so you test for what they're compromised with um, to see like, okay, does this, can we like make this work well in this situation? Then that gives you some, some advantages for sure when you especially when you move on to frames where you know for example if you have um bottoming problems because the frame is not progressive enough if your hbo is effective enough to prevent that then you're like okay we know we're good here because on the more progressive frames you're just not going to have an issue with that so yeah that's uh that's been the the way we've gone about it yeah fair enough and yeah the note about kind of main pivot placement and axle path having such a notable effect on the peak compression velocities that you're seeing is interesting, but certainly makes some sense. And so fair enough. Um, and well, I guess we should probably wrap up and let you get back to it here, but, uh, do you kind of have anything you're willing to guesstimate at this point as to when these things are going to be available or are we too early for that? 
we're aiming for April or May. If there are things that, uh, you know, nothing's going to really bring the timeline forward from that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there's myriad things that could push that uh, push that back. So we'll be at Sea Otter um, and showing the shock there. Uh, but beyond that, yeah, I think that's, you know, early summer, late spring, early summer is uh, where this should be ready. Fair enough. And um, any ballpark pricing yet or is that not figured out hasn't been determined uh you know obviously we're not going to be the cheapest thing on the market um yeah we'll see how we go with that won't be cheap i don't think it'll be the craziest thing out there either all right fair enough yeah we kind of figured we had a we had a reasonable shot at building the best shock on the market you know that's what we're trying to do Mm -hmm. we certainly can't make the cheapest thing and we probably can't even make the best uh performance per dollar thing when you look at something like you know uh a DHX or a, a bomber CR that actually works fairly well and is extremely cheap. So, you know, the the market that we're going for is definitely people who want the best rather than necessarily the uh, the single best performance per dollar option. You know, because that's that's always going to come at the at the bottom end of the market. Yeah. Right. You go higher end, you're you're getting into sort of incrementally diminishing returns, but you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, we we can make things better. Um, <laughs> I don't know that we can make things cheaper yet. You know, let's uh, we'll see how this goes, and you know, if that if the market responds well to it and people are happy with it, then certainly uh, down the line, as we scale up, we'll be able to stop at you know more value oriented options. But uh, for now, that's not really our focus, and it's not—it's not where we're—it's just not where we're positioned to be able to deliver that value, you know. Like compared to Fox or Rockshox or Suntour or DVO, um, we we don't have the scale, we don't have the sort of uh, Taiwan manufacturing either, so we're not really going to compete on that for the time being. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I would expect, and been good chatting, Steve, and good getting the rundown on what you're working on so uh looking forward to seeing more when the time comes and hopefully getting on one at some point too so thanks again this has been great yeah likewise always a pleasure yeah we'll be sure to get you on all right thanks david all right that's it for this edition of bikes and big ideas and as always we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in your podcast player of choice to help keep the show going and growing i'd also like to say thanks to steve for the conversation Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll be back again next week. Bye, everybody.